Welcome to the BookNet Canada podcast. I'm your host, Zelina Alvey, and this month we're looking back at our biggest book publishing meets technology conference ever. For three days in March, hundreds of professionals from across the industry, from ebook developers to librarians, converged in Toronto for TechForum and eBookCraft to share, learn, and debate the future of the industry. We've put together a highlight reel from some of our favorite talks, though they were all amazing, with insights on topics like metadata for ebooks, how retailers are bridging the digital divide, some great moments from our Women in Publishing panel, and lots more. We'll post a list of all the speakers and talks that we've included in the episode notes, along with details on how you can watch the full videos on those talks very soon, but for the next little while, just sit back or hold on to the pole of whatever bus you happen to be on right now, and join us on a whirlwind tour of books, data, and technology. I might as well start at the beginning. In the beginning, the director created the canvas, and the canvas was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the spirit of the director moved upon the face of the screen. And the director said, let there be content, and there was content. And the director saw the content, that it was good, and the director divided the content from the style. And the director called the content the document tree, and the darkness he called style. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And Bert said, let there be a box tree in the midst of the canvas, and let it unite the document tree and the style. And Bert made a document and rendered the fragmentainers of the box tree onto the canvas, and it was so. And the director called the document valid. And the evening and the morning were the second day. And Bert said, let the maker of standards be gathered together unto one place, and let the standard appear, and it was so. And Bert called the standard cascading style sheets, and the gathering together of the makers called he the CSS working group and the director saw that it was good. <laughs> the director, of course, is Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the World Wide Web. Bert is Bert Boss, the co-inventor of CSS. And what I like EPUB, by far our favorite format, and just echoing all of the conversation that's been going on. Um, and EPUB is our favorite because of the compatibility across reading systems. Um, all files that come through to OverDrive have to pass the most recent version of EPUB check, so 4.0.2. And if not, we do just put those files on hold or report it back to the publisher and wait until we can get a revised file. If one question that we do get is if you already have a title that's live and an ebook file in place, and you send through the file again and it fails EPUB check for whatever reason, maybe there's been an update to the um, check since you last sent it through, do we pull your title from sale? The answer is no. It's, it'll stay there until you have a file that will pass EPUB check, and at that point, we do process it, and it will overwrite the old file, and libraries will get that new file. Um, ebook sales have bounced back quite a bit this last year. So we saw a bounce down, and you probably heard that, about a lot of that in the media, and you can see it there on the graph. Um, but we've seen it bounce back, and every quarter last year was higher than the previous the, previous quarter and the year before. And when we look at the product mix that they're buying, it's a lot of self-published stuff. But the numbers are not down, as we hear in a lot of media. They're actually up, just slightly up, but still up. And you heard Maria talk a little bit about TPL and uh, Toronto Public Library. And uh, 
we've talked to Toronto Public Library a lot, and we know that the quantity and checkouts is up, not just at Toronto Public Library, at most public libraries across Canada, or a lot of them anyway. Um, so who bought what? 84, it stays pretty consistent. 84% of Canadians bought a print book, or of, of book buyers bought a print book. Around 22% bought an e-book, and around 4% bought an uh, audio book. So looking at the data for the accessibility feature usage, I look, this graph represents readers who did not report having a print disability in our study. And I was really surprised that 12% of those readers are using screen reader technology to access ebook content. Um, while that is still the lowest usage of all the features we decided to study, with font size and night display coming out far ahead around 40% and others around 30, um, it's really important to remember, as I think has been discussed often over the course of the last few days, that people can be permanently, temporarily, or situationally print disabled based on different circumstances, and that the people who want to use these features far outnumber just those people who are reporting print disabilities. When someone stands up and says, Facebook, you have to change the way you are. It, don't wait around for that to happen, first of all. It takes them weeks to get up and say, oh, we'll try harder to be better. Uh, there is a, a kind of way in which the coding technology, the tools to create com uh, computer code uh, and systems works that has a sort of um, self-fulfilling aura about it. It is, uh, the whole system is imbued with a set of values already. That to write code, you need to sit there and be obsessive, you know, for days on end. That to be a good software engineer as one who shall go unnamed, uh, infamous former Google uh, software engineer said, well, these women can't be any good at it because they won't stay and sleep under their desks at night. So I love him. Yeah, uh, so you have to understand this is the culture that goes on inside there. Um, and bringing in people who are not who do not come directly out of the computer science schools into this uh, environment is um, also a cause for attention. I know, um, particularly women, because they were the ones who've contacted me after the book came out, they say they go into meetings and they ask questions. Well, you know, what's the social effect of this? Who is our intended user? Who is it that we're ignoring? Who are we underserving? Who are we overserving? Now, wouldn't it be good to us, for us to explode? You know, there are new markets out there of underserved people. They can't just all be poor, desperate people. You know, they must, there must be some advantage for us in this as a company. Now, look, these are money-making. You know, we're not asking them to, um, to function without making money. Uh, and they are ridiculed. Their response is, you know, that's not our job. Our job is to increase our user base. It has to be increased as if uh, it was some kind of exponential curve that could never break. Uh, venture capitalists are on them. The market is on them. Uh, so everything is invested in a certain, or invested, so to speak, in a certain direction to push technology where it is now. But the thing about w women in publishing that I found both in the building and out is that what happens is that you bring those women in, you give them a chair, and then you say, good luck and you leave them to figure it out. 
So there's no movement in terms of figuring out how to promote those women. There's no movement in figuring out how to listen to them. There's no thought as to what kinds of books may be their task with editing or marketing or uh, doing publicity for. You end up getting put in this really narrow box. The next issue is obviously that you don't hire any women of color. Look how white this room is. Don't look at me, look at each other. Look how white this room is. That's embarrassing. Like this should feel embarrassing. I'm embarrassed, you should also, we should all be embarrassed by how white this room is. And the thing is, is if you think about it, how many prominent editors of color are there? There's one on the panel. So we got one, good for you. <laughs> but how many do you have who are black women who are prominent editors in the country? Can you think of any? And if you can think of one, that's also bad. How many are indigenous? And this is also, the indigenous question is important because we have built our work on the backs of indigenous writers. We love to say that. We love to say this is an important book. We love to say that this is the thing we're supposed to read about. We love to say this is our history. And we don't have any roots. We don't have any proof to say that, oh, we, well, we've supported those people. And then the other issue is when you bring women of color in, especially women of color, but people of color generally, what do you task them with? Do you listen to them when they talk? And do you bring them in because you feel like you need to check a box? Or do you bring them in because you feel like, you know, I've read this passage in this book and it feels really problematic, so I need somebody to read it and tell me I'm not a racist. If, if that's what you're doing, that's not enough. And so it gets really easy, I think, in publishing more so than in other industries, because publishing is very liberal. There's a lot of liberal white women in it. There's a lot of liberal men. But it gets easy to say, I'm doing a good job. I talked to one black person today. It gets really easy to do that. But the thing is, is it's, really, it's, kind, it's, it's almost a pernicious threat because it's so liberal and because it's so comfortable and because it's really easy to say we're doing a good job because we're publishing big ideas and this is an 80% female industry and the Random House was very female, it was extremely female dominated. It gets very easy to say I'm doing a good job. And that makes me crazy because then the other thing you can say is, well, we don't hire people of color because they don't come through in the schools. But if you run the company, if any of you run any sort of department or if you run any program, you can put in place an internship program that only brings in indigenous or black or brown writers. And you have money put aside and that money is put towards making sure that they can live in a city like Toronto, which is unmanageable otherwise. And you can do that sort of mentorship. And then you solve your own problem. And then people come to you and they say, oh, that publisher actually is going to give me financial care, they're gonna take care of me as an employee, and then when I'm bigger and I'm better, I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna work for them. This is how you have people stay faithful to companies or to individuals, either way. The nature of um, training in this industry, uh, you don't really learn how to edit. Most of us, I'm sure in this room, have taken editorial courses and it's really ambiguous and abstract and it's never how it actually plays out in real life when you're working on a manuscript. So I think, you know, the mentorship part of it is so important because, you know, I could sit in classes and I could, you know, watch from a distance what my, what the editors um, around me are doing. But like Sachi said, in a lot of ways, you know, you are left to your own, you know, and, and that I think has been incredibly challenging on a lot of levels being I, you know, I tried to do the count today, and I think we have a big editorial team um, at PRHC. 
I think there are only two of us that are of color that are editing, um, myself and Anita Chong, who works at McClellan and Stewart. And, you know, that is incredibly isolating, um, but it's also isolating because then I also don't really, I had to learn myself how to help tell other women's stories. So I can have the mandate and the vision and the dream to, you know, publish more diverse voices, indigenous, women of color, all of that, but if I don't know how to do it, that's a problem. And, you know, I do certainly feel the imposter syndrome every day. Am I a good editor? Am I doing this correctly? Am I doing this voice justice? Am I giving this person the space they deserve? Because I don't know everything. But then you also feel that added pressure of supporting those new voices coming in. And, and how do you teach those young editors how to edit this way? So it's, it really feels sometimes like this cycle that you know, feeds this inequity, but also feeds this imposter syndrome. So it's a challenge, I think. So doing a good job on keywords, though, is going to set you apart. It's going to set your books apart from the competition and from the rest of the crowd. So I do recommend that you do that. Now, how many keywords should you have? We've talked about the long tail uh, keywords, about the, the, the queries that you want to, uh, to match for. So there's a, a pretty common bit of information going around. You've heard people talk about it before, that, that Amazon only takes about five to 600 characters from your keywords list. Now, there's not a technical limit on the number of keywords that you can send, but if Amazon only takes the first five or 600, then you know, there's no reason to send more, right? But it's not completely accurate. Amazon assesses the in excess of 1,000 characters based on all of the studies that we've done. The misconception that a lot of people have is that each individual keyword is processed by Amazon and then applied to the book. But that's not actually the case. Each keyword is assessed, but it may or may not be applied. So if you look at a list of 600 characters, then you see that keyword in position 501 isn't actually being applied, you might think that everything after 501 is not being applied either. But in all of our research, looking at thousands of books across Amazon and looking at keywords that were past the 1,000 character mark in that, in that keyword list, there were often very unique keywords that were matching for books because they were in that list. So don't take into consideration the idea of just the first five or 600 characters. My recommendation is as much as possible, do 1,000 plus characters in your keywords list. It's about creating identity too. Like we, when we bring in creators for signings, we are very specific about which creators we bring in. So for example, we had a signing for the graphic novel Bingo Love recently. Uh, and so that was really important for us to showcase. Uh, we, we try to showcase continually how much we support diverse material and how we want to prop that up. Like I'm not really that interested in having a signing for the next superhero book because those things kind of sell themselves. They have their own market, their own demographic. I want to reach the other people who feel like there isn't material for them. I want to let them know that there is stuff that they can find. There's amazing things for them to read and enjoy and I want to show them how welcome they can be in my store. Well, I, I think we're all happy that the book is selling. I'm certainly not uh, suggesting tackling customers yeah. with, with phones, um, you know, as obnoxious as they are sometimes. Just turn the flash off. Like, 
please. Um, but no, I think for the most part, we're just happy that people yeah. are getting the books in their hands. It's a matter of having the publishers acknowledge that that role that we play right. and having them acknowledge it maybe a little bit with their pocketbooks. And even not even necessarily to like hand us cash, just make it easier for us to claim something that is theoretically supposed to be available to us. Because I promise <laughs> you, Heather is not leaving any co-op dollars on the table. Another interesting thing we saw last year is that backlist grew significantly as a portion of sales. It moved to 60% of all sales was generated by backlist last year, which was a 4% increase over the previous year. Now, there's some factors that contributed to that. It's partly because of two strong female authors, Rupi and Margaret Atwood. Margaret Atwood had um, always has a good year, but had a great year last year um, because of TV and movies. But uh, Rupi's, some of Rupi's poetry books are a little older too, so that really pulled the backlist titles up quite a bit. I was just wondering, you mentioned earlier with the personal digital assistants and the voice technology behind them. As they get integrated into uh, iPhones and Android phones and their reading technology over ebooks, how do you see that affecting the market of audiobooks? Well, the success of audiobooks in our mind is going to be dependent uh, on the performance itself. It's not just about reading uh, a script. Uh, we focus on um, working with the best actors out there. As a matter of fact, we were the, the number one employer of actors in the tri-state area in New York. Uh, we are focused on working with folks who really understand the power of the spoken word and performance. So we will uh, take great pains to uh, focus on making sure we have the right narrator. So it's really the recitation of the script, you know, reading the, the phone book is not gonna sell. <laughs> When, when I started doing audio back in the 90s, we would do like a lot of, it, it, a lot of more famous people. And one of the things that I've really discovered kind of coming back to it is that there are people who specialize. Like this is what they do and they are rock stars at it. And people will not just look for authors in terms of what they want to listen to, but they will look at narrators. And you can certainly do that on, on Audible where you can, people discover narrators that they will just follow to the earth just the way that you would an author. So that's something that we are focused on too, um, where we really do try to pick the right people. I myself am curious what's going to happen. I've certainly had these conversations with the colleagues who said that you know the speakers are gonna get to the point where they're going to get really good. I will say, I, I, th I feel like they've said that about actors too. And as so. a technologist, I can actually add to it that it is inevitable, uh, it is coming. Uh, I'm actually waiting to read and listen to the first book that it is AI generated. Uh, can't wait to hear that one as well. Uh, does it replace human, the soothing voice of the human being? Probably not, but it will have its own kind of category and genre. Why not? I have a sort of a running Google search for digital divide, and one of the things that I find is we get a lot of stories about uh, you know, indigenous kids who sit outside the library to be able to do their homework because they don't have internet where they live. And I like those stories because I think they highlight the problem, but I don't like those stories because I think they also offer a really easy solution, which is like, oh, give the kid internet at home and that kid's gonna be exactly the same as a kid who's had internet at home since the kid was born. And it's trickier than that. And I don't mean to be like, eh, so don't try. But I do mean like, don't just offer sort of facile digital divide scenarios that are also happen to be the ones that you can help. 
basically. So it's you know, structural limitations on connectivity, but also inclusion and access that we have to be dealing with. Thank you to all the speakers who presented at Tech Forum and EboCraft 2018. If you'd like to see their presentations in full, subscribe to our YouTube channel or join the mailing list. The links are in the episode notes, so you can find out when those videos are up. Thanks as well to everyone who attended, worked at, or supported the conference in any way. We couldn't do it without you, or without the financial support of the Government of Canada through the Canada Book Fund. And of course, thanks to you for listening.